This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is offering bonus content to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, including character creation and how-to-play episodes, plus cast and crew outtakes, all still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. Omniverse. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is for mature audiences only. This episode contains discussion of poisoning, infection, chemically induced mental health crisis, car crashes, death, harm to children, and abuse. Please listen at your own discretion. If you find our Stygian story simply scintillating, unlock further secrets at patreon.com slash omniversemedia and cthulhumystery.com slash support. If you find your phalanges aren't so frigid out there in the bitter cold, you can give some skin to the Bucktown Five for that fiery and seasonally appropriate number, Hot Mittens. I've turned up the heat, but I can still send a chill down your spine because this evening debuts a special event for the Yuletide from our frightening friends at the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, the Cthulhu Cthomentary Arcane Advent. Every Friday through December, they'll be exploring the clammy and viscous depths of Lovecraftian cinema. Oh, and would you look at that? It's December 1st, and a Friday. Well, that can only mean... Do you hear that? In the cruel blackness of night, an unknowable evil from beyond time cries out... What dark deeds unfold on the streets of Arkham? And which unwitting souls, innocent or impure, will succumb to the maddening call? The Call of Cthulhu. Welcome, friends, to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's Cthulhu Cthomentary Arcane Advent. Here to paint your merry and bright holiday season with ghastly screams and indescribable colors. Cthulhu Cthomentary is our behind-the-scenes show where, normally, we do episode-by-episode excavations of mystery program, digging into all the historical research, literary secrets, Easter eggs, deleted scenes, etc. But on occasion, we also examine Lovecraftian cinema, and that's what we're doing here in this arcane advent, five weeks of horror films for the holidays. You may have heard one or two episodes of Cthulhu Cthomentary in our main feed. We like to share them from time to time. 
but normally these episodes are exclusive to our supporters on Patreon and supporting cast. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is only made possible via listener support, so creating Cthulhu Cthulhu and other exclusive series, as well as offering ad-free episodes and early releases, are some of the ways we say thanks to the amazing folks who are able to aid us in telling these strange stories. In fact, this month on Patreon and Supporting Cast, our initiates are unwrapping an additional five Lovecraftian cinema cathomentaries. If you'd like to discuss these films with us, share your own hot takes or something we missed, shamble on over to our Discord. You can find the link at CthulhuMystery.com. Now, tonight you'll hear us talk about the 2019 adaptation of The Color Out of Space. And this discussion was recorded back in 2019 at the release of the film when it had been announced that The Color Out of Space would be the first in a trilogy of Lovecraft adaptations from the film's director, Richard Stanley. In the years following this recording, Stanley was accused of domestic abuse, and the film's production company, SpectreVision, ended their relationship with him, canceling the remaining films in the trilogy and pledging all future revenue from the film to charities devoted to stopping domestic violence. Which is all to say that in this discussion from the distant past, we'll remain blissfully unaware of that disturbing turn of events. As a fan of H.P. Lovecraft's writing, I'm well-practiced at separating art from the artist. So, won't you join us for an evening of sinister cinema studies? <laughs> ah, but who is us? <laughs> I haven't even introduced myself. I'm Kat Blackard, the showrunner of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, and with me is our keeper of arcane lore. Hi, I'm Luke. And we are pleased to present to you our Cthulhu Cthulhu discussion for The Color Out of Space, starring Nick Cage. Yeah, at his Nick Cageiest. It's, no, this is not as Nick Cageiest. This is this showed great artistic restraint on his part while still wielding the manic beast that we all know and love. <laughs> true, true. Although I guess like in in this case though, it's it's with the whole family. Like it's it's a family's descent into caginess. Oh, that's true. They're all being very cagey. Yes. Yeah. So this I should point out is going to begin as a spoiler free review, and if at such a point we decide that we must uncork the spoilers, then they shall flow freely like so much tainted tap water. This is, of course, a direct adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story, The Color Out of Space, which was published in, I want to say off the top of my head, 1929, but let's find no, out. earlier than that, I so, think. I don't know. I don't think it is. Oh, 1927. I was close. <laughs> but I suppose in Lovecraft time, that's not close at all. <laughs> Very prolific over a relatively narrow window. Oh, look at this lovely illustration they have on um, on Wikipedia. That's very nice. I recommend going to the Wikipedia page for the original story and seeing a a very a very interesting uh, etching. Uh, we should probably point out that we are like recording this like well after midnight. It's one a.m. <laughs> yeah. So if 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 we are a little uh, a little loopy, that's that's a, a big big chunk of it. We caught an early release <laughs> screening that had a charming but brief Q&A with uh, director Richard Stanley, Nicholas Cage, and uh, some of the other cast members by surprise, and was hosted by Patton Oswalt. It was nice to kind of hear a little bit about the background of the movie from them and kind of different people's approaches towards aspects of it. Yeah, Nick Cage had a leather jacket with a with a B on the back of it, which really, I've got so many questions. I did an episode of Horror Queers on the 2006 Wicker Man, which is just one of the worst things ever. And- How did it get burned? How did it get burned? <laughs> Nick Cage produced that film. Like he was really integral in, in making it, which I have so many questions about, especially because it's so misogynist. 
and like re- listen to my horror cruise episode i get in, i get some <laughs> i get in some rant territory but the b component is really fascinating to me because that's the most original part of that film because otherwise it's just a absolutely horrendous remake of a masterpiece and in the what they've done to it is inexcusable but then there's this b stuff and the b stuff is actually kind of interesting but isn't given the opportunity to thrive and does nick cage have a b thing maybe 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 Ayo. <laughs> but hey if nothing else besides the b stuff the other good thing that came out of it is the animated gif of nick cage running around in the bear suit punching people yeah that's i mean that's that is <laughs> that is a big mood uh, so I reread the original piece for this, and I also watched the film Mandy, which was by the same production company, the same editor, and uh, also starring Nicolas Cage. The uh, production company is Elijah Wood's company, Spectrovision, and uh, they do cool, trippy films, it turns out. These are the only films of theirs I've seen. But, um, I mean, generally, if something has... Uh, artistic merit but is not going to get produced by conventional means then uh this is how you make these unconventional things for instance an hp lovecraft adaptation where uh well it's it's relatively accurate yeah yeah no yeah it's it's a it's a story where there's no real antagonist it's kind of really just a man versus the cosmos story mm-hmm. you know i haven't seen every hp lovecraft adaptation there are many but they are generally very loose. Not many of them even have the same names as the stories they're based on. And as mo- with most Lovecraftian things, they transmute quite a bit, though, in this case, usually for reasons of making the unknowable horror just a bit more knowable for general audiences, no matter how much they veer into grotesque perversities of darkness. But this might actually be the most to the letter. H.P. Lovecraft adaptation that's ever been committed to a major motion picture. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Reanimator's close. I mean, obviously Reanimator's played with a bit more camp. Like, it doesn't have a whole thing where, like, Herbert West goes off to war, that whole angle on things. But generally, like, it's very close to the original story. You, you know, I haven't I haven't seen it. I know it's, oh, it's, one, of the, it's one of the big ones, one of the tentpole ones. But yeah, I've never seen Reanimator. Oh, uh, Jeffrey Combs, man. And everyone loves him. And I think I think the reason I have a complete ambivalence towards him is not having seen that film. Or not having seen a, a bunch of the latter-day Star Trek stuff. Well, I guess now mid-period Star Trek stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, was he in Enterprise or something? I mean... Oh, he, he, he's the best character in Enterprise, like, full stop. Shran is the best character in Enterprise. But okay. then also, like, he's, like, five characters in DS9. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's weird. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, something for me to look into down the line. I'm sure it'll it'll come around. Anyhow, this film, how'd you like it? I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty well paced. It was nice and creepy and a lot of the weirdness out of it was not weirdness that happened in the ways that I expected it to. Mm. In all honesty, it, it beat my expectations because kind of like you mentioned, you know, with adaptations of Lovecraft stuff and cosmic horror, things like that. It's kind of rough. And then <laughs> yeah. there's not necessarily a lot of appetite in Hollywood for like, you know, just kind of a grim story where things are kind of outside of the realm of humanity. Right. Even horror has yeah. to have some degree of like an upswing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not, would not be, I mean, I, I there are other adaptations of the story and I, as I understand it, they're not what happened here. <laughs> um, 
So if you need a frame of reference, the original Color Out of Space, the you know the one from 1927, therefore me talking about it is not spoiling anything. No. Um, <laughs> or at least it oughtn't to be. And if so, go ahead and read it. It's freely available. It's framed from the perspective of a surveyor who's doing surveying on a, uh, a, a re- remote valley, I think just west of Arkham, where there's going to be a reservoir built. And it's like about 30 years prior in, um, dates are a little fuzzy, but sometime in the 1880s, there uh, was an event. And there's this whole region that he wanders through called the Blasted Heath, where everything seems very dead. And there's only one person who will talk to him about what happened there because the people in Arkham just sort of dismiss it. Um, they call it the strange happenings, I think, or the strangeness, the years of the strange years, the years of the, the, Yeah, I think the, it's strange years, maybe. Strange. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't years, though. It wouldn't have been years. But know. anyway, just off of memory. And essentially, the surveyor finds out that once upon a time, there was this family who lived out in the woods, normal people just having a rural lifestyle being pretty chill. They had a farm, they had plants, they had horses, uh, they had cows, and a meteorite crashed and it got into the well and it seemed like it was no big deal. The uh, stone collapsed in on itself. It got researched back in Arkham, but it was rendered inert almost immediately. They couldn't find out anything about it. And then things got real weird at the town. And this is from the perspective, this is told to the surveyor by the person who tells him the story and that person who told him the story is the one who keeps checking on this family back in 1880 let's say um but meanwhile it's probably 1927 so anyway this this family has this whole event where they slowly go crazy bad things happen one by one they lose their minds a little bit get locked up in the attic terrible things happen to them the fruit gets really big and gorgeous looking but tastes like garbage kids drown in the well there's something in the water and that's the gist of it am i missing any any crucial notes Uh, and then just as everything falls apart and turns to ash it leaves as mysteriously as it came there you go that's the other part yep it uh it like it ascends. There's there's something just gestating down there, and it does whatever it was doing, and it 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 turns all the the woodland creatures into monstrosities of some vague variety. Um, just wrong. They just they're just wrong. And then, and then it goes away, and uh, and the surveyor gets all this information. It's told to him with such a degree of severity that he believes every word of it, and everything that he's seen is so haunting that he quits his job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the film. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, I and, mean it's it's pretty close adaptation definitely. But in modern times. Yeah. And done with a degree of like I mean it takes place just outside of Arkham. There's people wearing Miskatonic University t-shirts. They mention all the surrounding spaces, Aylesbury and uh and Dunwich, so they they prefer the Dunwich pronunciation. Yeah. And uh Innsmouth and so on and so forth. Just littered with all kinds of Lovecraftian referential things hither and thither. Yeah, and it doesn't really feel too forced that they're doing that. Like it's just that's that's the place they live. I just like the matter of fact way that like just Arkham gets talked about. Yeah. Like it could have been, I don't know, Phoenix, Arizona and surrounding principalities. Yeah. It's uh is directed by Richard Stanley, and this is a important point because Richard Stanley is something of a of a cult film figure. He did a film called Hardware and a film called Dust Devil. 
neither of which I've seen, but are highly regarded, and I would like to see them. But he's perhaps best known as the person who wrote and almost directed the 1996 adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is, of course, renowned for being terrible and a filmic disaster so bad that there's a documentary about how bad it went, which I haven't seen and only just today found out existed, the documentary, that is. Because I, I very much like parts of, I mean, I like, well, parts of the story of Dr. Moreau. If, if it involves human-animal transformation, I'm probably going to yeah. be somewhat interested in it. Yeah. Or I should say human-other-special transformation, because we're all animals. So, anyhow, he's been absent from the film industry more or less since then. There's been things here and there. But this, this is his return uh, to film after a long time and being a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. And also, I believe, a practicing pagan, which is a component that's been in his work quite prominently, including this one. Yeah, definitely. Though it rears its head in weird ways, not in the kind of ways that it rears when I do my writing. But the family is Nicolas Cage, the dad, and there's the mom, Jolie Richardson. Nicolas Cage plays Nathan. Uh, Jolie Richardson plays Theresa. Madeline Arthur plays Lavina, the teen daughter. Brendan Mayer plays Benny, the teen boy. And then there's also, I don't see him in conveniently listed on Wikipedia, but there is little Jack-Jack, the little kid. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that is the same number of kids, but I think the it was, instead of a young boy, it was a young girl. I'm not 100% certain about that, but basically there are kids and terrible things happen to them. This one really focuses on the kid's perspective. In the short story, it's more like the guy from a few miles down the road interacting with the dad, Nathan Gardner. Lavinia, the uh, teen daughter, she's the first member of the Gardner family that you see, and she is doing, uh, she's casting a circle and doing some kind of protection or healing spell on her mom who's suffering from cancer, some unspecified uh, variety of cancer. They are a pretty modern family, but living out, out in the woods, uh, they've got alpacas. Mom is a stockbroker <laughs> attempting to do it from a rural lifestyle, and there's a lot of really good tension building around all these components and the, the various like family and mundane stresses that that really compound and are emphasized by what happens to them as they decline yeah i think they did a really good job in this with that family drama aspect of it yeah the interplay especially between the kids and how they treat each other and and act around each other just the whole family dynamic i think their little weird dysfunctional group i like how they are together and kind of how that develops over time yeah it's interesting because you know because it's a faithful adaptation, like you have to understand that this is a film that is a kind of suffering to watch in a way that, you know, horror films are often a degree of camp and escapism that doesn't necessarily make you suffer unless it's got a psychological bent to it. And this one definitely does. I mean, because you're watching people who are being effectively poisoned. They're losing their faculties. It, there might be instances where it'd be like, you know, have the usual like, don't go in there. What are you doing? Kind of like horror movie things. But you can tell, especially based on their performances, their ineptitude or their lack of perception is because they are not operating with a full deck after a point. You know, their their water is tainted and terrible things are happening. And the visuals are are beautiful and stunning. You know, this is a color that can't be perceived by the human eye. And that's represented. It's mostly, I mean, let's be frank, it's mostly pink and fuchsia. Yeah. But like sometimes like when it appears and the glint off of ice cubes, you're like, oh boy, this feels 
just like if you're unnerved by notions of infection or radiation poisoning or any of that kind of like real world horror, this will absolutely trigger you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just kind of the way that, that he plays with that. I, I liked the motion aspect of things, especially that scene where like he tries to start the car and then not exactly successful as you go in your horror movies, but as he gets out of it and just the world around him is just writhing with motion. Like, yeah. I just really, I really liked that shot and it just lingers on it. It's just so many things moving there. Yeah. The psychedelia components of this film's art direction are very, they're present, but they're not present in a way that is in the least bit obvious or how you would necessarily expect it would be done. Yeah. Everything kind of has the appearance of almost being an in-camera effect, even when it's not. And I'm assuming <laughs> that more often than not, it isn't. But yeah. I don't know. I didn't go to school for cameras. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suspect a lot of it's kind of, you know, post-production, things like that. But then... I'm sure they probably had like a lot of effort setting up lighting on some of their shots just to get as much of that, like with the, especially with like the reflections off of the glass and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, this is definitely a film that I would really relish some um, very technically oriented uh, features just to see how it was, was done. Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of finesse here. I mean, this is, this is the kind of project you get when a cult filmmaker comes back after like 20 years of absence and uh, sticks a landing. Uh, sticks a landing so much so that this is but the first in at least a trilogy of Lovecraft adaptations, all, you know, loosely interconnected just as with all Lovecraft things are, our series included. And the next will be the Dunwich Horror or Dunwich Horror, as I'm sure it will probably continue to be called. Look, what's the official ruling on that? I personally prefer Dunwich. Like, I just like it. It gives it kind of more of like an old world feel right that's kind of like yeah. Louisville Kentucky yeah yeah that's just kind of why I like that pronunciation but I mean there's not really any but you, you know when someone's an out-of-towner yeah <laughs> which I, I think is like a, a very nuanced real thing that helps ground things a bit so yeah seems, yeah it's kind of that's why why I like that kind of pronunciation on it but yeah that'll that'll be interesting to see you know whereas Colorado space is just straight up this family just experiences this thing that they have no control over and no real way to to fight or even really interact with other than being acted upon yeah um and just dealing with it whereas like Dunwich horror basically that's that's as close as you get i think to an actual like call of cthulhu rpg as a lovecraft story right this is like a premise yeah and that's like a hard narrative yeah yeah like there's things that happen in that it's got a whole yeah exactly it's very very different very different. Yeah. So I'll yeah. be interested to see what they do with it. Because that's going to have, you know, yeah, characters doing things and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, like not like nobody does anything in this movie. But, like, it's just it's just a fun, fundamentally different kind of story. This is, this is a character exploration. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's seeing how people deal with these extraordinary circumstances and how they're already, like, mildly but kind of normally dysfunctional life can be further altered by the extreme horror that they undergo as their faculties are taken away from them. Yeah. Uh, that, for me, made it a particularly painful watch, especially from just recently having seen Mandy. I wanted to see it for a long time, but that's a film that's also, like, it's a... That's a very gory vengeance film. Beautifully shot. Even more beautifully shot than this film. 
but it's it's about painful, terrible things happening to people. And in that case, there's kind of like I guess the fantasy of enacting revenge, except that like that it's 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 done intensely, but not in a way that's any kind of um, you know vengeance is sometimes just, but it doesn't necessarily feel like there's no catharsis for the loss. You know, there's mm-hmm. no real catharsis there. It's just pain. It's just pain and acting more pain. In this case, against very evil forces that definitely deserve it, um, <laughs> which is great. But with color out of space, it's it's a, a lot of it's a lot of suffering. It's yeah. a lot of like some people die in car crashes, and some people die slowly from cancer, and some people start dying from cancer, and then also have unfathomably horrible things happen to them as a result of a happenstance meteor crash. Yeah, and one thing I kind of enjoyed about this is that there were kind of some elements to it that I didn't quite expect to happen. Yeah, there's but, more. They, they do yeah. more to the story. But but it, it never felt like the color is unpredictable in how it works, but it never feels like it's breaking its own laws. And and like for, for me with horror movies, like I find that important, like especially ghost movies to kind of uh, off topic a little bit just to talk about ghost movies for a second, uh-huh. uh, but to get where I'm coming from on this. So like ghost movies, the thing about ghosts is ghosts are creatures of habit, like fundamentally. That is their reason for being is a ghost is someone who hasn't let go of a thing and they do a thing and they do that thing and that's they're a ghost. So then like – so that's one thing that fascinates me and that I enjoy about ghost movies is like the, the exploration of the rules behind them. And then you've got like – what the hell was it? Cell, I think it was. The Cell? No, 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 no. Some damn stupid movie where the ghosts follow people through cell phone calls or something stupid like that. I can't oh. even remember what it was. But but that irritated the hell out of me because the, the, they spent the whole movie establishing the rules and then they break them. And like not even in, in an interesting way, we're like, oh, shit, I hadn't thought of that. It's just like, oh, no, these, this ghost doesn't actually follow rules. And it irritates the shit out of me. I don't mind that, that the former one where it's like, oh, man, yeah, the, there is a whole complicated extra layer to this ghost. That that makes sense. But if it's just like, oh, no, it doesn't actually have rules. The color, the kind of things that it was doing and the way it was infecting people and, and yeah, like you said, poisoning them. Like It felt like it was a, a, its own kind of cosmic sense as things kind of unfolded. They all kind of tie together in different ways, That that, that sense of corruption and, and toxicity yeah this is a very satisfying adaptation how it takes the source material and expands on it which is something that you know we haven't done yet on mystery program but we very much have plans to do mm-hmm. and so seeing this done in this way was very satisfying and I, I felt like oh boy like here we are like this is a very kindred project in a lot of ways to <laughs> to what we're doing though I suppose what's difficult about the story is it's the misery of what happens here cannot be excised. It has to be as horrendous as it is. And that is something that I find extraordinarily difficult. But I think it's it's honest to its material. And one thing that I was really intrigued by was Lavinia's pagan practices. As the surveyor attempts to identify what it was, he asks her if she was practicing Wiccan or Alexandrian. Mm-hmm. And he guesses Alexandrian and she says that he's wrong. I'm not familiar with like, I know the rigidity of those practices are not something that I know enough to know that, that that's not for me. But I'm, I'm wondering if maybe like the joke is that their last name is Gardner. So it was Gardnerian. 
But then also, if it was Alexandrian or Gardnerian, then she would have been doing that skyclad, which would have been a totally different opening sequence. Um, but I don't know. Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's just <laughs> that was my hot takeaway. So it was it was interesting no. because like she's she is not she's the most different character, the most the most present character. You know that you can expand on any character in the story, and that's yeah. easy to do because they don't have much material in the original story. Yeah. But hers was the one where I mean she has. I'm not going to say that yet. We can talk about that later. Her book. Yeah, her her book. Yeah, she has she has a book and she does some things. Yeah, I've got I've got some thoughts on that. You know what? We've said enough. We've already like basically yeah. said like, hey, if you know the story, then you know how this ends. Um, which is a pretty big spoiler, I suppose. Yeah. So right now we're gonna go to uh, Spoiler Country, USA, in yeah. the county of Arkham. Wait, what county is it? Is there? Do we know that? I think it's Arkham County. Arkham, but county. I could be wrong. Arkham City. It might be, it might be Miskatonic county. county. I don't okay. remember. We use references a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. not all of it's logged away in our memory banks. Lavinia has a paperback copy of the Necronomicon, which she uses to attempt some kind of ritual involving a lot of scribbling in her skin with the razor blade, which apparently does nothing unless it's interpreted to have provoked the color greater. But I don't think that was what they were getting at. Yeah. So that's kind of an, a whole interesting angle that like bringing in the like the mass market paperback version of the Necronomicon, because like in a world where... Alazif, the the Necronomicon exists as a thing, and especially where like you know one of the things which will come up in the Dunwich Horror, which is over time you end up with increasingly corrupted editions of it as it's just like translated and copied and translated and copied. Right. That's the whole reason that Wilbur Waitley tries to break into the Miskatonic University Library, which is to get the Latin copy. Yeah, that's some. Uh... Series two of mystery program material <laughs> that we will get to soon enough in this program, but yeah. So with it, the idea that if you're dealing with stories in modern day, the Necronomicon, you know, would be a thing. It's kind of a cornerstone of the mythos. And so the idea that like there is this mass market copy floating around that is like some incredibly degenerated version of it and is just full of elements of poetry taken from the original and rituals sheared of their original context and things like that to where yeah if you don't go mad from reading it then <laughs> i mean if if she's a perfectly functional normal teenager who has a copy of this book who has read it and is still completely functional and normal then it's not it, obviously it's not the real deal she also had a copy of uh, alistair crawley's book of the law on her bed at one point um <laughs> yeah i saw you trying to crane your head to, to see what uh what she had on there one of the other books was it was a joseph campbell book on goddesses yeah. yeah so i i thought that was interesting to see i mean then again you know not everybody reads an Necronomicon and goes nuts i mean uh professor armitage he uh had read it and then does a cram session on it before uh rolling out to dunwich <laughs> yeah i got uh, i got some questions were there were there moments throughout the the film where you were like shit roll a sanity check, like because I feel like there were some real there were some pauses where you know something will happen and I'm like you can just this is where you pause the video and you roll to to, to figure out like how bad this hit them. Oh man, yeah the uh, the scene where uh, she just is cutting those carrots. Oh, <laughs> I, I I had to roll that then myself, but actually I'm I'm kind of able like even even though you know I absolutely adore the the game like I'm able to kind of most of the time especially if I'm watching it in theaters just 
sit back and enjoy it on its own merits and later on kind of reappraise it in that context. Yeah. So like in all honesty, I wasn't really thinking about it. I was I was just letting the experience wash over me. Yeah. But afterwards, yeah, I did kind of consider that because like that was one of the things was I specifically like along those lines. I was like, man, what what would what would the stats be on the mass market paperback version of the Necronomicon? <laughs> <laughs> one of the, the biggest departures of the film from the short story is the horrendous and awful thing that happens to Theresa the mom and Jack Jack the little kid when they get uh, fused together by some inexplicable uh, purple lightning and to, into one uh, gasping beast with two backs kind of yeah. thing. It was awful. Just atrocious what happened to them. Yeah, yeah. That When it first happens, I'm like, oh, wow, they, they're horribly burned or something not like maybe like half, half melted or whatever. Yeah, it, it surprised me. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a, a genuinely very, very fucking disturbing, and like, and does a good job of being like, it's it's so horrible, and you see it in glimpses. It's got a, there's a lot of um, I feel like there's a few pages from what John Carpenter did in in the Mouth of Madness here, which is you do see atrocious, awful things, but generally you see them only in momentary glances, just enough to let your brain fill in the rest of the blanks. And you do see quite a bit of this mom-son fusion creature. Yeah. But even still, you you don't really get the whole picture ever at once enough to have any chance of becoming comfortable with it, and it's, it maintains being awful the whole time. Yeah, especially because, like, they're shifting. Mm-hmm. Like, Every shot with them is a little different, and the kid is in a slightly different place, like on her back. Or, or yeah, yeah. And the sound design was very smart in this film. There were lots of little subtle things that were done, like especially with that creature slash character of making sure that you were always hearing both characters like breaths and crying and like different things. So even if you couldn't see one of their faces, in more often than not, the little kid, you were definitely hearing them, and it was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, that. That's the thing is they they just did a lot of a lot of stuff that I didn't expect, which uh, I enjoyed. I was glad to see the mother and the son. Like that was one of those things where there were a lot of elements to this that that kind of start out in the in, in kind of almost a, a kind of a stereotypical way, and then it just kind of takes a left turn. Like like the the little kid being tuned in to the creepiness and just kind of like being absorbed by it in a way, you know, like uh, The Shining with yeah. you know, Danny riding around and just experiencing all the weirdness and just, it's a common horror trope where you've got the little, the littlest kid is the one that is like talking to their invisible friend and all of that. And in this case, you know, the, the little kid being absorbed by the weirdness is much more literal in a way that I had not expected to happen. Yeah, yeah. There's also, there's elements of like micellar horror, like mushroom oriented mm-hmm. Kind of like fungal horror, which uh, mycelial. is mycelial, yeah, <laughs> um, and and that's something that doesn't come up too often. Like there's things like that, that like X Files episode where they all get kind of like cocooned. That's sort of that. There's little bits of it in here, like when in the fusion, there's like these. You, know, you can never really tell what's exactly happening there, but there's these things that are either, they're either boils or they're growths or some kind of like mushroom thing like on that conjoined form. And the infection is so 
in all things, in the static of the television, it's in everything, like a big mycelial network communicating with itself in its own alien way and its alien patterns and it's kind of like almost like breathing it you know it gets to the point where like it's like the whole landscape is one big breathing organism so when it erupts and evacuates finally it's it's like an abduction of the entire land which has become corrupted and one one little component that was particularly interesting in a little element of synchronicity is there's a scene where nick cage is showering and there's this thing blocking the uh the drain and there's like hair in it and it's got this whole like you know like gross shower horror stuff but then like it's like a scoby you know like this weird like little like almost like a jellyfish growth that like you just get it for a split second and it goes away yeah earlier today i was just i i read this just bizarre story because colin has uh gotten me on this kick of uh kefir how you get these mm -hmm. little grains and they're like they look like i don't know kind of like rounded crystal things and you put them in a, a sugar water liquid and they sort of ferment and it creates this probiotic drink. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a quasi yogurt drink, right? And that's milk kefir. Okay. I'm doing water kefir, so it's more uh -huh. it's more like it's more like kombucha. Yeah. It's like depending on how the different ways you you brew it, it can become a kind of vinegary or sweet and you mm -hmm. mix fruit with it and all kinds of stuff. So like we have a septic tank at my house and I wanted to make sure that in the instances where Kefir particles get down there, grains get down there. They're not being like fed by all of our waste in an aggressive way that could say destroy or hurt the septic tank. Mm -hmm. And it turns out from what little I read, it looks like that's not the case. In fact, it's probably good that they're there. Yeah, if anything, I would think it would be like the opposite. Yeah, but in that search, I found this story, which comes from Altamont Springs, Florida, right down the street and pertains to a weird kind of similarity to this shower scene. While picking up my weekly milk order from my farmer, I mentioned that I wanted to return a quart jar to her for more cream, but that all of mine were full since I had made so much kombucha recently. She asked whether I had any extra mushrooms since she wanted to start making it again. That led to a discussion about the mushrooms themselves. She uses hers three times, then throws the oldest one away and cuts her others into small pieces and then uses those three times, etc. That way she's always using fresh mushrooms. When she first started making kombucha, someone told her that they were good for septic systems, so she was flushing the old mushrooms down the toilet. A couple years later, the septic tank guy came to empty out her tank, and he opened it up to stick the hose in to start draining it, but he couldn't. He was totally baffled and had to get out his knife and hack away at the large, tannish, leathery thing that was floating at the top of the tank. She was quite sure what it was, and she was quite sure she was not about to tell him. Can you imagine... A kombucha mushroom the size of a septic tank. If only someone in the sci-fi industry knew about scobies. <laughs> Said Lee Burdett of Altamont Springs in, I don't see a year on this post, but yeah. So that was odd. That was like, mm, I mean, yummy. cutting through a giant mushroom growing in human waste so thick you can't puncture it with a hose, you know, like that's a thing. Yeah. That's a real thing. What other spoilery things do we want to discuss? I thought Tommy Chong was used pretty well. Tommy Chong was great. He's a treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Really good dissemination of, like, especially his, his tape at the end. That yeah. was like, you that, know. That, that was a really good scene. Yeah. Like, in, in using some, some pieces of dialogue that were, like, lifted almost directly from 
the original piece sort of like offering a homespun explanation for what it could have been that's like at the very least within the context of the story seems to be relatively true yeah and then also the um hydrologist the kid from miskatonic yes uh the the would-be surveyor um his intro and outro monologues are practically verbatim from the original story yeah and I've been thinking about since rereading the story, I've been thinking about where it exists in the in the, the actual like hard timeline of mystery program because I have a run, a working timeline that's got all of the key Lovecraftian mythos mm. things synced up to real world events and synced up to our own events just to make to make sure that I have a it's hard for me to write historical fiction without having like a really big solid timeline yeah vantage point because i want to like because otherwise you know like especially having the understanding of like what were these people going through what else was happening in the world at that point in time Mm. i have to be able to see it and like i don't have enough of an inherent understanding of it without so i I use this like you know visual tool to help me with that and so there was some flooding that took place that i haven't researched yet i think it was in vermont and then like i said it was in the 1880s when allegedly the the instance happened with the Mm -hmm. color and then it was written in 1927 but it was based on in theory that idea of the reservoir and all that was based on an actual reservoir project that was happening Mm -hmm. um but didn't end up getting completed until 1939 Mm -hmm. so relatively like mid late 30s if we use the actual reservoir that this project was based on as a notion for when and how this reservoir thing would be implemented in our own continuity, it would happen sometime in the mid-late 30s. That the Arkham water would be dubious. Because, like, what happens here in this film is it appears that it evacuates entirely. They don't really give much of a hint that it's still around aside from, like, a bug. Yeah. Um, But in the story, it sort of acts like the meteorite wasn't necessarily one thing. It was almost like some eggs, and some of them burrowed deeper than others and like one ascended but there may still be another one down there Mm -hmm. and so that's the kind of like real notion of there is a ticking time bomb like definitively a ticking time bomb somewhere underneath the water which is fucking horrifying especially especially if we start letting ourselves dwell on modern day problems like resource scarcity and all that you know like it gets really gosh it gets really bleak real fast yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention that I just I'm just I'm using on really more than I, there's there's not really a point to it. But on the television at one point in time, there's a film starring Marlon Brando, and Brando and Richard Stanley had a positive relationship during the course of making The Island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah. They bonded over Brando's character Kurtz from Apocalypse Now because of Hearts of Darkness or mm-hmm. Heart of Darkness, and they had some kind of connection. Of course, like. There are other much bigger problems, not the least of which was like, I think Brando's daughter committed suicide or something that like really just one of the many elements that really fucked that film's production up. And I'm sure Brando's uh, heart, probably. So I don't know. I don't know what his appearance. I don't know what film it was. I have no idea what film that was. It was in Color Out of Space. And I don't know. I don't know what it means, but it definitely means something. I think it's just a little personal kind of nod from him. I mean, that that you know that was the movie that 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 kind of pulled him out of Hollywood. Yeah, it definitely had a profound impact on his life as a director and you know screenwriter and all that. So yeah, and I've... and if you know he he doesn't bear any ill will towards Marlon Brando. Well, no, no, yeah, I, I think so I like, think this is I yeah. think this is probably a very specific 
like love letter of some kind. Like I think I think it's really like the selection of the film and the scene from the film. I couldn't really make out the dialogue too well, but it, I feel like there's probably a message there. Like it probably means something specific. And it's a positive thing. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's, and it's probably kind of a personal thing. Probably. In that case. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. It could have been something that they bonded over. Like, oh, yeah, here's my, here's an obscure role. But they, you know, like they had some kind of mutual appreciation. I'm not sure. But interesting. Yeah. Also interesting is the uh, really shitty, aggressive mayor of Arkham. <laughs> yeah. You should have sold when you had the chance. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like. If there's any, like, you know, I'm going to eye roll a little bit. Cinematic universe, uh, like, seating that's happening in this, mm -hmm. she's at the epicenter of it. Yeah, potentially. But, like, I, I just, I don't see where she would come into the Dunnage Horror in the same way. Like, because this is, I mean, I don't know. A, a mayor makes sense here because, like, you know, there's property issues like that. You know, weird stuff happening. I think, if anything, it would be uh, it would be Ward as the uh, Miskatonic U alumnus. Maybe. He's certainly a candidate. Yeah. She just seems like a a real easy thorn in someone's side. When a problem gets so big that someone needs to do something about it, she's exactly the person who's going to make sure that nothing happens. Ah, so she's going to be like, what are you doing with all those shotguns and, uh, and insecticide spray canisters, uh, Professor Armitage? Yeah. Why don't we go talk about it down at the station? Sheriff, arrest these elderly men. <laughs> They're up to no good. Yes, it's true. <laughs> this mayor has no dick. <laughs> I guess that's it. It was good and you should see it, but do prepare yourself for something quite bleak. Yeah. On a scale of happy feet to dancer in the dark, it's not dancer in the dark. <laughs> uh, it's maybe, it has too many laughs for dancer in the dark. So it's uh... actually speaking of that, the laughs, I guess that's kind of an interesting thing with it. Um, it's interesting how that's all front loaded. Like like there's there's a there's a fair bit of comedy in this movie and it kind of like drains away as things get weirder and more corrupted. Like, I mean, there's still like occasional, but it's, then it's like mostly like just like creepy, uncomfortable laughs. Yeah, it depends on it depends on how. Yeah. How much you're internalizing the experience or not, because if Nick Cage freaks out and you're just inclined to be like, oh, Nick Cage, what a card. It's like, I mean, yeah, it's the same thing as like that gag from early family guy of like, oh, Tom Hanks. Everything he says is like is a, is a laugh, right? I have AIDS. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. it's how or how connected are you or not to what's actually happening on the screen? Yeah, because um, if you are connected, then all Nick Cage's weird acting and his like when he starts slurring and and getting that kind of valley girl accent of his that he has on occasion like yeah. and you realize oh that's not him being weird that's like this guy's losing his mind and not able to really talk right anymore yeah and that's one thing i thought was really interesting was like that aspect of it where it's kind of you know like a lot of mental issues that people will have they'll have moments of lucidity and that happens a lot in this movie yeah like especially where like he's going nuts like just munching down on these rotten, terrible fruit, and his wife's yelling at him, and everything's like, like this, this like increasing tense tension in the scene, and then, and then it's just like, yeah, that's a good idea, honey, and it was just like, like that line is delivered so normally, yeah. that it makes it like extra unsettling, yeah, and that that's one, that's an instance where like it is unsettling, it is still okay to laugh there, yeah, but it should be nervous laughter, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, it was yeah a lot of a lot of uncomfortable laughter 
towards the middle later part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's just oh, it's it really truly does thrive on you know. I mean, if you lose yourself, if you're like, if you have like blood sugar issues, if if you have any kind of chemical imbalance, like if you if you're, you you know the instances where you actively feel you're losing yourself, even if you're having your, your period and you're just like I. No, I shouldn't be acting like that, but 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 I am, and fuck, and like why, like especially when it, when those sort of things like get exacerbated into like in a real like challenging self harm, like mental dangers and so on. Like, yeah, this film really taps into that and performs that in a way that is not like one hundred percent thorough, but it does it more than most ever do, and it's subtle when it hap- when it starts. Yeah, yeah. And like that first time he really like starts getting into the weird voices and just flips out at the kids and then just like runs upstairs and he's like, "Yeah, I just I just I just blew up at my daughter. Uh I, I'm not winning any father of the year awards this year." Yeah, which is like that's what he's rationalizing to himself now that he's gone upstairs. But boy, when he was downstairs, nothing he was saying made any kind of like it was yeah. just like I can't even imagine being on the end of that kind of like like beratement and thinking like, "Wait, is that is that normal? Like, and the father child or the, even the parent, the parent child dynamic of like, when you're a child, you don't necessarily have the perspective to view your parent as a full, well-rounded person. You might not necessarily perceive how that behavior is as erratic as we, as, as third party audience members can view it as you are coded to feel like, regret or shame or whatever other things like come with being yelled at by your parent and so the kids behave in a realistic way of like not they don't they don't say like that was weird right they don't really have that moment but we know it was weird yeah well i mean they kind of especially benny like like the boy when he's talking with uh what's her face uh, lavinia like like he's like dad's being weird right but in a way where he's like he's not sure how much of it is like you know is normal or how much is not yeah yeah, they can't trust anything, and they can't they can't trust themselves, and they can't trust others, and their trust is consistently betrayed by every facet of the way that they interface with their reality, which is just an awful nightmare to be a part of. Yeah, the characterization and all of that, I, I really enjoyed how that played out in this movie. I thought it was pretty good uh, pacing wise and and structurally like the story that it did tell yeah unlike this episode or review it's so late and i'm so sorry we've been rambling quite a bit yeah but i've been up since like 6 a.m oh so. luke shit <laughs> please be safe on your way home i'm gonna just i'm gonna i'm gonna you wield my director wand and i'm gonna pull the plug now that's not mixed that's not com- complimentary visual metaphors but it is ending thank you so much for listening to okay. Cthulhu Cthomentary if you have any thoughts on the film please do share it on our discord and um, we'll talk to you soon adios 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 from those hosts but hola to yours truly we'll see you next week Feliz Navidad Friday here on WIS for another installment of the Cthulhu Cthomentary Arcane Advent What's in store? Well, I hope you're still keen to be seeing through those rose-colored lenses and have your till and gas resonators handy because we're going from beyond. From beyond where? Well, I guess to your ear holes. Over the old airwaves. Nice and crisp in that cool air. (laughs) Ha. 
but our initiates on Patreon and supporting cast have an additional destination. They're paying a visit to the seaside to visit that jolly old ocean god, Dagon. To get access to this in our entire library of Cthulhu Cthomentaries and exclusive actual plays, head to CthulhuMystery.com support. You know, I should put some decorations in this studio because, though the holidays are very much upon us, here in this windowless box, Christmas time seems years and years away. In a garden fair set a happy bear Thanks for listening to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. This series is made possible thanks to the generous support of our producers, Amber Devereaux, Becky Scott Fairley, Bob Hogan, C.B., Joe Tancrisiardelli, Josh King, McDribble Deluxe, Mjolnir, M.K. 86, Patrick Webster, Sean Hutchinson, Sean T. Red, and our executive Patreon producers, Big Bad Shadow Man, Marcus Larson, and Jamieson Lalone. You can join the team at CthulhuMystery.com support. And if you enjoy this podcast broadcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery program is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky on land stolen from their indigenous people, the Tamuqua and Seminole, and Shawnee, Cherokee, Osage, Seneca, Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Edina. Acknowledgement of the first peoples of these lands and the lasting repercussions of colonization is just the beginning of the restorative work that is necessary. Through awareness, we can prompt allyship, action, and ultimately, decolonization. For links to aid indigenous efforts and to learn more about the First Nations of the land where you live, visit CthulhuMystery.com slash land back. Our original score is composed and performed by Ryan McQuinn and Mike McQuinn of Neon Dolphin. Home for all your custom music needs and more, NeonDolphinMusic.com. This has been the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Good night. Omniverse. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. This is Yanni, and welcome to Season 2 of Harlem Queen. Thank you for listening. The season picks up with the search for Michelle. You are listening to the Floyd J. Calvin program. And now, straight to the headlines. Manhattan debutante and socialite Michelle Mondesir has been kidnapped from her Connecticut boarding school. There is a tri-state search for Mademoiselle Mondesir, who is 15 years of age, Caucasian, and was last seen yesterday evening going to her dormitory. Stephanie is frantic and she risks all in order to find her missing daughter. We will find Michelle. There are troopers all along the New Jersey and Pennsylvania highways. That's not enough. Madame Stephanie St. Clair posted a $10,000 reward for information that leads to the safe return of Ms. Mondesir. You need to take down your reward, Stephanie. I will not. Those no-good couples are already saying she's dead. The connection between the debutante and the numbers queen is unclear. And Stephanie still has to contend with Luciano and Schultz plotting to push her out of her own turf. Word on the street is that it's Schultz. Who cares about a lost colored girl? This one is white. 
Fifth Avenue debut on a lot of money, well connected. And I want to find out why Stephanie is so fixated on the girl. Stephanie is highly invested in her safe return. What do you need me to do? I need you to cheese it. What about Sinclair? You tried to clip her twice. Is she pushing up daisies? No. We're gonna get her another way. Even Halstein is suspicious. Is he truly a friend or a foe? She's putting herself behind the eight ball. There's something more there, and I need to find out. In the meantime, someone has to earn the money she's deciding not to earn. You have no power in this case, Stephanie. In fact, you're a liability. I will do everything in my power to get her home safe and sound. Listen up for season two. Harlem Queen is a recipient of the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's Creative Engagement Grant. And once we all get through this safe and sound, we will have a live radio show of Harlem Queen this fall. More episodes to come. Take good care and stay well. Thank you.